our young people, our children, ages eight and under, to head into kids' church with my awesome wife, Ashley, is, is to this room to the right, to your right, my left. This is the kids' opportunity to escape the adult sermon. And it's highly... Oh. Not that it's a bad one. Not that it's a bad one. Y'all's choice. Adults have to stay. All right. Today we've got a, a special guest preacher. His name is Bishop Martin Menz. And we're honored to have him in our presence. He's a great bishop in the church. And I'm going to turn it over to Bishop Menz at this time. It is good to be back home, and uh, we've been traveling around a bit, and so it's good to get back to, to Sandestin, where we live, and uh, so the weather is not quite what we anticipated, so it's good to be home. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we bless you that you are here among us. We're thankful, Father, that uh, indeed this is a community of people who celebrate your life within them. We pray now, Lord, you take this time that we share together, the word that we proclaim, and use it for your glory. Yes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today, as you may have noticed from the front of the, the bulletin, we are celebrating the festival or the feast of Christ the King. And you also, I suspect, you've been aware that the lessons speak about God as sovereign or king, and that he most certainly is. But he is a king with a big difference. And let me explain. For the past three years, Angela, Rachel, and I had the great privilege of living in London, England, where I was on special ministry assignment for an organization called GAFCON, the Global Fellowship of Confessing Anglicans, indeed, which of which you're part. It's a global family of what we might call believing Anglicans, folks who take the the traditional teaching of scripture seriously and try to live it out. And it was a great privilege and joy for us. We've never lived in London before, even though we've come from England, and it was just a great delight. And we made the most of our time, and indeed all of our children and grandchildren, most of the grandchildren, came to visit, and Angela and Rachel developed uh, a special tourism gift. And they took all kinds of, in fact, the big bus tours, if you've been on those things, she knows their stories better than they do so it was quite a lot of fun but living there we came became very much aware that we were living in a different kind of place from uh, the united states we're living in a kingdom the united kingdom that still has a monarch queen elizabeth ii and while i do understand that she is a very gracious godly lady much beloved by all who meet her there are many aspects to the monarchy that i find rather problematic you know, people are sharply divided between those with privilege and power and those without it. And it's built into the very fabric of the country and the culture. And there's an unbridgeable gap maintained over generations. And frankly, it's growing wider. And that's one reason why there's lots of political turmoil. At the heart of the culture is the conviction that some are born to rule and some simply destined to be ruled. Upstairs and downstairs, if you like. And this attitude is memorialized in a familiar British hymn that you all know well, 
all things bright and beautiful. But what you don't know is that one of the verses was removed when the hymn was imported into the American hymn book. And it's this verse. The rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly and ordered their estate. You see why that didn't do too well in, <laughs> in the Americas. In other words, some people count and others do not. And that is quite a contrast from the attitude described in our first lesson, where we're told that the sovereign law will leave his place of privilege and seek after the lost. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. See, this is a very different understanding of the role of a king. See, we, as Christians, have a king who will lower himself to care for those in need. We have a king who will lay aside his power and prestige so that all might be made well. We have a king who is prepared to leave his palace and seek the lost and bring back the strayed. It's very different from the kind of popular images that you have of kings and queens. And then we have this astonishing passage from Matthew 25. And this particular gospel lesson is for me one of the most challenging passages in the entire Bible. If you take it seriously. Now you can't just listen to it and go, let it go right by you. But if you actually listen and take it seriously, it's this incredible challenge. You see, it presents to us a vision for the final judgment that is unique to Matthew's Gospel. And it follows three different parables about the preparations necessary for the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming. And in this particular account, Jesus is using a, a very familiar image because mixed flocks of sheep and goats were a common sight in the land. But it was necessary, and everyone would know this, to separate them when night came. The goats needed shelter from the cold. While the sheep prefer to remain outdoors, they have a little more blanket cover. And it may be a very folksy story, and you say, what's that got to do with things today? Well, it's a, it's a powerful message that we dare not ignore or merely spiritualize. It is a call to obedience, a call to care for the least, the last, and the lost. As some of you know, last week, I had the great opportunity to participate in an international interreligious colloquium at the Vatican. The theme was the complementarity of men and women and an effort to really strengthen the, the call to what we might call traditional uh, biblical values. And there were a number of papers presented from a wide variety of religious traditions. Pope Francis gave the opening address and I was able to, to greet him and chat with him briefly at the general audience held later in the week. I don't know how many of you have been to Rome, but it's an amazing city, filled with symbols and structures of ancient power, prestige, and privilege. It is all on a massive scale, and is, I think designed to make you feel very small. In the Vatican itself, there are constant reminders of the very strict protocol and hierarchy that governs everything and everybody. And I must confess at first I rather enjoyed the Swiss guards saluting me 
And uh, as a bishop, I get all kinds of stuff. And then I got special seats next to the Pope on the platform, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, this is, I can get used to this. <laughs> uh, but then I began to wonder, especially as I was thinking about coming here this week, about this text. How do the least, the last, and the lost fit into this thing? I mean, where do they, where do they count? Now, you may have heard that Pope Francis is a bit of a radical, already made some changes. For one thing, he has refused to live in the palatial papal apartments that has always been the Pope's place, preferring instead to stay in a much more modest clergy guest house. And he travels in a regular car rather than a limousine. I also noticed and was delighted to notice at the weekly audience where everyone's kind of fighting to get a seat uh, that he has reserved the front section for the handicapped, for folks in wheelchairs, for those with special needs. And he makes a real point of, of greeting them uh, afterwards. But the pressure on him to live the life of privilege and celebrity and to lose sight of gospel priorities is absolutely enormous. So pray for the man. I talked with the priest about this. I was just sort of chit-chatting as I was wandering around. And he used to work with Mother Teresa. And he told me that she also struggled with the, the kind of constant adulation and the celebrity status that people wanted to push upon her. And one way she handled it was after every public event, she would go home and clean the toilets. Really, that's what she did. To kind of remind herself that she was not that special. And that the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. A couple of years ago, there was a story in the Washington Post that got my attention. It was about the brave new world of prenatal testing written by Patricia Bauer, whose daughter Margaret has Down syndrome. Patricia described how Margaret has been such a great blessing in her life, and she listed all of her considerable achievements. And then she described a recent dinner party, conversation with a director of an Ivy League ethics program. In answer to another guest question, he said that all prospective parents have a moral obligation to undergo prenatal testing and terminate their pregnancy to avoid bringing forth any child with a disability. Now, of course, that got my attention for rather obvious reasons. It's not just then. Just recently, atheist spokesman Richard Dawkins, who you may have heard of, restated this view quite recently. He declared that it was immoral, hear that, immoral, to subject a child to the kind of suffering he or she would have to endure. Immoral. Well, the author tried to explain that her daughter, Margaret, does not view her life as one of unremitting human suffering. Although currently she is devastated her mother hasn't bought her the latest iPad. But the director smiled politely in that way that directors of Ivy League schools can do and turned away. Now, I realize, I fully realize that Prenatal testing is a complex topic that goes beyond any sermon. But the real question is about our attitude towards those whom the world considers worthless. The king has something to say about this. 
our king. I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me, born and unborn. It's now estimated that 80 to 90 percent of pregnancies with a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome are terminated. But it doesn't stop there. People are now using the same procedure for sex selection to make sure they get the right gender mix. And recently I came across another article that suggested that it will soon be possible to predetermine behavioral indicators. In other words, only designer babies who behave properly will be allowed to live. The rest will be terminated. It is, they say, your moral obligation. How tragic. You know, we look with horror at ancient Greece where babies with disabilities were left out in the elements to die. And so we should. But in contemporary America, we use medical science to make our decisions in private. The effect is the same. But the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did, one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. We've got a friend called Alberto, and Alberto is a brilliant architect. He combines a passion for elegant design with a remarkable ability to use materials that are environmentally sound. He's got projects all around the world. Alberto is also a gifted teacher, and he was a, a member of our congregation in Louisiana. But there was a major shadow in his life. Alberto was an alcoholic, almost destroyed his career. Eventually, through the ministry of AA, his life did get turned around, but it was too late for his wife. The pain and the devastation were too deep. They were divorced and he remarried. However, one of those delightful God incidents, his first wife and their four children also became members of our congregation. This led to a number of what we call pastorally challenging moments, <laughs> including one that I've never forgotten. It was Sunday morning, and I'm, unlike John, I'm not able to sit quietly inside. I have to be outside to make sure someone's going to come. You've got much more, you're much more content. I'm always out there praying, Lord, bring them in, Lord, bring them. And as these cars go by, I'm saying, turn, turn. Um, and we had two parking lots, so I was busy praying, one each side. And people would arrive on both sides. On this particular day, I looked to my left, and I noticed that Alberto and his new, life were, new wife were making their way towards me, beaming as they held their new baby. I looked to my right, and to my dismay, I noticed Alberto's first wife and their four teenage children were also heading towards me. And I calculated they were walking at just the right speed so they would meet right in front of me. And so I was just praying, Lord, if you're going to come back soon, now's a good time. <laughs> They met right in front of me. And then Alberto's first wife smiled as she reached out, offering to hold the new baby. It was a moment of true grace as they all walked into worship together. And the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Three very different situations 
But the message from our gospel lesson is the same. At the final judgment, the question will not be, did you lead a great church? Or did you think great thoughts? Or or even did you expound right doctrine? The question is, what did you do about it? You know, it's easy to enjoy prosperity and privilege, but are we willing to put it aside and serve the needs of the poor? It doesn't cost much to criticize those who abort their unborn babies, but are we willing to walk alongside those who have crisis pregnancies and those who have special needs children year in and year out? It's so much easier to look the other way when we confront the problem of divorce and broken families But are we willing to walk the extra mile and practice Christ-like compassion? See, that's the real question. The king will decide between those who are to be on his left and on his right on the basis of how they have cared for the least, the last, and the lost. It's a disturbing and humbling thought. Some time back, I listened to a lecture by Baroness Carolyn Cox, a remarkable English woman who's given her life for those that the world ignores. You can Google her name and you'll see some astonishing things she's done. She's witnessed the horror of the killing fields in the Sudan and the slaughter of innocents in places like Indonesia. She has a passion for the poor and the outcast. Her lecture was on a rather controversial topic, the rise of militant Islam, and the very serious challenge that it presents to the West, a challenge we're now, I think, slowly beginning to realize. She was careful to distinguish between militant Islamists and the majority of Muslims who hold to a more moderate form of Islam. However, it was what she said about Christianity that caught my attention. She said that one of the distinguishing marks of Christianity from its earliest days is its humility. Not triumphalism but it's humility. As St. Anselm of Canterbury from the years 1033, 1109, declared himself, we are a faith seeking understanding. We start with a relationship with a living God and then we begin a journey of discovery. Year after year, we learn more about God, more about ourselves and even more about the wonders of God's creation. We don't claim to have all of the answers in a tidy package but rather we are willing to ask questions and admit that there's a great deal that we don't understand. While we're confident that out of the silence of eternity, God has spoken a word that is trustworthy and true. We are humble when it comes to applying that truth to our lives. There's no room for self-righteousness. It troubles me sometimes when I turn the TV on and see some of the, the Sunday morning preachers. I'm glad you're here. Because I get embarrassed by some of the the arrogance that comes across. See, we don't spend our time dividing the world into first and second class citizens. We, We don't embrace only those who are the true believers and ignore the rest of the world. We don't treat women or children, the elderly or the infirm, as less valuable. Instead, we're quick to admit that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We often fail to live up to our own calling but that's where we stand. Another reason I love this church, I'm on the same level as you are. I like that, because it's true. We're all standing at the same level. Because you see, at the heart of our faith is the one who gave up all of the trappings of power 
to be born in a manger. By the way, a manger, you're going to see some nativity scenes soon, but a manger wasn't cleaned up very well. It didn't have lots of deodorant <laughs> sprayed over it. It was most likely still ponged a bit from the, the oxen and the, the animals that lived around. He could have lived in a royal palace with all of its status and comforts, but he didn't. He had no place to lay his head, and he ended his earthly life nailed to a cross between two thieves on a garbage heap. Now that's true humility. And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. You know, it's so much easier to attend seminars on the causes of world hunger than to actually feed someone at your dinner table. It's much more stimulating to debate the problems of poverty than to talk to a poor person. It's so much easier to criticize and to agonize about the crisis of abortion than to open our homes to an unwanted child. It's much less threatening to talk about the tragedy of homosexuality and is to befriend someone who identifies himself or herself in that way. But Jesus will not let us off the hook. See, it's what we do with what we believe that counts. You know, Angela and I ran into all of this when we lived in New York City. Our evening congregation was made up of mainly homeless people. They were men and women that I would rather avoid when I walked from our apartment to the church. We had all kinds, black and white and everything in between. We had homosexuals, bisexuals, transvestites, prostitutes, drug addicts, you name it, we had everybody you could think of and some folks you couldn't think of came to our church. We had people who lived in cardboard boxes and those who slept on the subway. We had, and one thing I quickly discovered, however, was that every one of them had a name and a story. And every one of them was a person that God loved. Now they listened politely to my sermons. I made sure they knew what I believed. But what they were looking for was whether I was willing to put feet on my faith. And when they found out that indeed I was prepared to do so, the miracles did begin to happen didn't happen overnight, it wasn't magic, but when men and women discovered that if they were hungry, we would give them a meal. If they were thirsty, we'd give them a drink. If they were strangers, we would invite them in. If they needed clothes, we would find some. If they were sick, we'd care for them. If they were in jail, we would visit them. They also discovered God's love working through us and, began to, and it began to change them from the inside out. It was amazing. Angela told me I should write a book about it because we saw astonishing things. We saw crack addicts set free. We saw broken people made whole and those who had no hope given a reason to believe. And I could tell you all kinds of stories, but I'll tell you one quick story. It's about a lady called Elizabeth. Elizabeth came to worship with us one Sunday night and she came in dressed in camouflage gear and she was angry and she had a big knife. And she was cursing and swearing at all the folks around her, sitting in the back row. And so I said, tell me, who is, who is this lady? I said, oh, she just came back from uh, upstate. 
That's the polite phrase they use of jail. She killed two men. And uh, she's still pretty angry. I said, hmm. Well, it's kind of hard to lead worship when you've got someone cursing at you from the back row. But I, I went along and we did what we could and we turned the music up a bit louder now and again. And uh, we got through it. And afterwards, I greeted her by name. I said, Elizabeth, glad you came. And she swore at me. And I said, well, come back next week and we'll see what we can do. And, uh, and I began to discover, as you might expect, she had a story. A story of incredible abuse. My father and then men of various kinds and one way she'd react to was to, to kill him. She'd done time uh, but she was still very bitter. We used to do prayers in that church differently from the way you do. You're much more behaved, well behaved here so you follow the rules but they didn't do that. So I used to get a microphone and I'd kind of walk up and say, okay, who needs prayer? And people put their hands up. I said, you need prayer? And so this guy was telling me, I need prayer. What do you need prayer for? Well, I'm still on crack and it's killing me. Who else needs prayer? Who else is suffering with crack? Half the hands will go up. So, okay, we'll pray for that. So we'll pray for that. And I'd say, who else needs prayer? And this lady perhaps says, I need prayer. Why? Well, they take my kids. The child protective services take my kids. And I'm missing them. Who else has lost their kids? Well, hands will go up. So we'll pray for that. And that was the way we did prayers. And it was... I had to learn never to be surprised... Yeah, about whatever the concern was, because indeed it was a concern for them. Then. And then the weeks later would have answers to prayer. People would share what God had done. And God answered mighty, in mighty ways. Well, Elizabeth stood up. She'd, by this time, she'd moved a bit closer to the front and was swearing a lot less. And so I said, I said oh yeah, Elizabeth, you need prayer. I said, oh yes, I need prayer. And all the men said, oh yes. <laughs> and she said, I want God to soften my heart. Because I'm full of hardness and I don't like it. I thought that was the gutsiest thing I've ever heard anybody say. And so we prayed for her. And God began to answer that prayer slowly, slowly. I noticed she even wore a little less camouflage and a little less nice stuff. And she didn't bring a knife, or at least I couldn't see a knife. And um, she began to enter into our life together. Because what she was looking for, she wanted to know, would we actually follow through or would we kick her out the way everybody else did? Would we care for her as a person for whom Christ died? And we saw, we saw that when men and women discover their true identity in Christ and not in their brokenness, it was a privilege to see God at work. You see, it wasn't really that complicated. Because how could you do all that stuff? I said, well... We simply took God at his word and we tried to do the gospel. But it's also much more than that. You see, we worship a God who is passionately and practically concerned about people, all people, and especially the poor and the outcast. By the way, there are poor folks around here. You don't always see them because I'm in the back rows places, but there are a lot of poor folks around here. And God is concerned about them. Our God, you see, is immensely practical. He has chosen to work his will, his love, through people like you and me. He could have bypassed us. Frankly, I think I would have done. But he didn't. He didn't simply say, give the angels charge to get out there and do the work. He said, no, I want to use people like you and me to do it. 
Because you see, the thing is, when we serve those in need, we're actually serving him. Brother Tracer called it serving Christ in his distressing disguise. Let me use that phrase again because it's powerful. We are, when we serve the, the least, the last, and the lost, we are serving Christ in his distressing disguise. Because he has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in his way. He has no voice but our voice to tell men how he died. He has no help but our help to lead them to his side. Friends, today is Christ the King Day. But it's a very different kind of king. Let's not forget it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we bless you that you have turned the world upside down. We pray, Father, that you'd find us faithful to your call to serve the least, the last, and the lost, as indeed you would and you did. We pray this in Jesus' name.